We're thinking this evening of faith like David. For one last occasion, I'm going to remind you of uh, Ross Edgley and his great British swim. I've used it as the introduction to this series that we've been having on resilience. This man who swam round uh, the British Isles, uh, I think it's 1,700, I had to check the figures again, 1,792 miles he swam in 157 days, swimming for, uh, on average, or up to 12 hours a day uh, in two six-hour blocks. Uh, what incredible resilience. And, and we saw how not only had he trained and put in all the exercise needed, but he had, he had come to understand the sea, the tides, uh, the, the inhabitants of the sea, the jellyfish, uh, the the way the mind works when it's tired, the nutrients that the body needs. He had come to understand all of these things so that he was well prepared for this long distance race, or not race, this long distance endurance event. And as I read his book, so much of what he was saying sort of gave me illustrations for the Christian life. The Christian life is not a sprint, but it's a marathon. And we need resilience. And David, as I started to look at David uh, for this talk, uh, I started to see how with David we've got someone who in Scripture we have about 50 years of his life set out in great detail for us. And he is a man who displays incredible resilience. And surely that's one of the reasons why the author just mentions him here. Because he has this resilient faith. And the Christian is called to a resilient faith. And as we've seen over the past weeks and months, that God has supplied all the fuel that we need to, uh, to run the race. And here in Hebrews 11, we're encouraged by seeing a whole gallery of people who've run the race, that their faith has not been in vain. And there is it where they're waiting at the finishing line. And we see them up ahead. I mean, they made it. They made it. And he says in the next chapters, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, keep going. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It's as if they're there and their very presence at the finish line reminds us that it can be done. There's, there's Abraham with all his failures. There's Moses and his quick temper. Uh, there's Jacob and he's, and he's lying and he's scheming. And these, these men, they found salvation. There's Rahab with all of her history and baggage. And there she is at the finish line. They ran the race. Uh, they enjoyed the salvation and they lived by faith. And just as the writer comes to the end of his, his great gallery of the heroes of the Old Testament, it's as if he's run out of time and he's looking at the end of the, 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 the manuscript, uh, the scroll, and he goes, I'm not going to have time to say what I was going to say. So he gives a set of bookmarks or if it was a website, they would be, the words would be in blue that you could click on them and they would take you somewhere else. So he says, there's Gideon and there's Barak and there's Samson and there's David and there's Jephthah. And I think he wants us to go in our mind's eye or to go in our Bibles and to consider what would he have said had he written about 
Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jeff. What, what did they do by faith? And it would be easy as we think about David to focus in on the, the big moments of his life. The David and Goliath moment and think, oh, there's faith. And to illustrate uh, David's faith from that one moment. Or we could focus in on his, his battle with Saul, uh, this long-running uh, cat and mouse that was ongoing uh, for years. And we could focus in on that. We could focus in on his colossal and catastrophic failure and ask the question, where was his faith then? But, you know, the big moments, faith, faith for the big moments is shaped in the small moments. Faith for the big moments in life is shaped in a thousand little moments when we respond trusting God in the small things. And you see, with the story of David, in a sense what we've got in the book of First and Second Samuel is the director's cut, the highlights, the big moments of David's life. But we've got something else. We've got David's journal entries. We've got, as it were, his prayer diary in the book of Psalms. So many of the Psalms, but half of them uh, have in the title of David. And some of them even give moments when those are connected to. And we read from one earlier this evening, Psalm 55. And there as we look at David's, we'll call it his journal entries, we see David's faith in action in his own thought life. Because it's one thing to look at what somebody does, but it's another thing to have them unpack their thinking for you and to see faith in action in somebody's thinking because that's where faith happens before faith is an action it's a thought process and in the book of psalms we see david's thought processes and i want us to think this evening of two things first of all there's a portrait of david's faith and this is to help us see in a sense the the grit uh, in the engine uh, of David's life. It wasn't all smooth running. Um, and then we want to look at the fuel of David's faith. So first of all, a portrait of David's faith. David's uh, faith, as we look at it uh, in the Psalms and in, the, in 1 Samuel. And we see that this faith this faith enabled David to cope with at least five different sets of things. He rubbed what he knew in his head into the circumstances of his life. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to take what we hear on a Sabbath day or at a midweek or from our own Bible reading or from another Christian, and we have got to rub it into the fabric of everyday life. And that's what we see David doing. Consider these five things that his faith coped with. It coped with obstacles. It coped with obstacles. And we think of David as a shepherd boy. And there, uh, there's a lion taking one of his sheep. Or there's a bear has grabbed hold of a lamb. And David, 
David has his faith in God that God will enable him to act here. Uh, then he comes to Goliath. And the God who enabled him to cope with the lion and the bear, David expects that same God will enable him to cope with Goliath. You know, David is used to seeing God in his circumstances and seeing his circumstances, as we often say, through the lens of God rather than looking at God through the lens of, of circumstances. And when we look at God through the lens of circumstances, he seems small and distorted and cloudy. But when we put God first and look at everything else through the lens of God, that changes how we see things. And David does that. And so his faith helps him to cope with obstacles. Those obstacles multiply later on in his life in all sorts of ways. But there's a time when his own family and the families of his men have been uh, taken prisoner and his men want to kill him. And we read in 1 Samuel, I think it's 29, and verse 6, But David found strength in the Lord his God. David's faith is one that always is looking to God and, and rubbing what he knows about God into the, the fibers of his everyday life. And as we face obstacles, that's what we're going to have to do. To, to take what we know to be true and to rub it into the fibers of what's happening in the, the seconds of our lives, the minutes, the hours, uh, whatever it is. So it cope with obstacles. It cope with opposition. This is different. Obstacles can be, in a sense, the, the events of our lives, but opposition are the people of our lives. And we've got so much in David's life. At every turn, there seems to be somebody against him. Uh, there's Saul. And Saul uh, and his repeated attempts to kill David, both when David is in the palace and Saul tries to pin him against the wall with a spear, and then when he's out pursuing him around the Judean wilderness. And then you've got his own wife uh, turns against him in 2 Samuel 6. Then his, his own son, Absalom, turns against him. And then his friend who may be the one that's being referred to in Psalm 55, his friend Ahithophel turns against him and he goes over to Absalom's side and starts to give Absalom advice and counsel. He knows David's thinking. He knows David's strategies and his tactics for battle and how his mind works. And then he switches sides and the betrayal of that and the bitter disappointment. And David brings his faith to bear in those circumstances. We'll see that. We'll see particular instances in a moment. But here's where we will need to rub what we know about God into the fabric of our lives whenever there's opposition. It may be family like David. It may be friends like David. It may be the world around us. And we can either have one of two reactions. We can either cave in and sort of cower away down and, and give up, which is what the Hebrews were about to do. Or we can become, in a sense, aggressive and fight back and take matters into our own hands and, and stand up for our rights, as our world is so fond of telling us to do or telling people to do. I've got my rights, you know. 
But David does something different. And yes, there are times when we do need to take a stand for our rights, especially when those, are, uh, those rights impact others and we're standing for them as well. But there are other times whenever we just have to trust God in the face of opposition. And that's what God, or that's what David does here. That's how his faith works out. He, his faith is in God and not in his own ability. He was quite the warrior, we know that. He had opportunities, and we'll see in a moment, to to get rid of Saul, and he wouldn't take them. He trusted God to be his safety and to be his vindication. That's how he coped with opposition. God would vindicate him, and he was confident of it. And then his faith coped with delay. Think of the delays that he faced. David was probably anointed by Samuel at about mm, something 14, 15, 16 He doesn't become king until he's 30. 16, 15, 14 years of a delay. And even then, he's not king of the whole kingdom. I think for another seven years. Delay. And what do you do when God's promise is slow in coming? What do you do when there's delay? Well, David shows us that we live by faith. We live by faith. We are convinced of God's plan and God's timing and God's wisdom. And that enables David to cope with temptation because whenever delay is there, temptation comes. Temptation comes to take what we think God owes us. David could have said that. Well, God, you said I would be king and I'm, uh, this man is hounding me and he's putting my life at risk and he's, uh, you, you owe me, God. And he could have said that. Um, taking matters into his own hands. He could have become impatient with God's timing and tried to push things himself. And there are many issues where we face that and we have to cope with delay. And we could take matters into our own hands. And we could push uh, things our way and become impatient with God. It's the sort of thing could happen to uh, a young person, whenever they're, they're keen to have a relationship and rather than waiting for God's timing in providing a Christian boyfriend or a Christian girlfriend, they say, well, I'm going to push matters and I, I, I'm going to start a relationship with someone who's not a Christian. And they, we need, they need to have faith that God's way is best and trust that God's timing in the matter. Faith copes with delay. Trusting that God knows best. And there's all sorts of circumstances where that's the case. Faith too copes with sin. That doesn't justify sin. We don't say we can sin because we believe God will forgive. That is a grotesque distortion of grace. But we're not perfect. We will sin. David wasn't perfect. And he had this monstrous failure with Bathsheba. And why did that happen? It happened because he wasn't faithful in the little things. The chapter starts in the spring when kings go off to war. David sent Joab with the army. And where was David? He was at home. 
He was in his bed. He was up on the roof of the palace overlooking Jerusalem where he shouldn't have been. He should have been away with the army. And he wasn't faithful in the small things, so he fell in the big things. But the key point, where did his faith help him? It helped him in his response. He didn't dig his heels in. He didn't say to Nathan, take your old story about sheep and about poor men and get out of here. I'm a king. I can do what I want. He didn't dig his heels in. Uh, He didn't live in denial. He didn't, uh, didn't do any of that. He humbled himself. He rubbed his faith, what he believed. I'm a sinner. I've been proud. I've been immoral. I've been godless. He admitted it. He rubbed it into his sin. And we see it in Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and in thy sight done this evil. He repented. And that's where faith is seen. He became small in his own eyes. There's a problem later on in Second uh, Samuel 24 where David becomes big in his own eyes and is proud again and he makes a mess. He has a census to determine how great his army was as if that was his defense. And, uh, and not God being his defense. And he has to humble himself again and become small in his own eyes. But his, his, what he knew about God, he brought it to his failure. And he knew that he needed to admit his sin. And he knew that with God there was forgiveness. And it made it safe to admit his sin. It coped with his sin and it coped. Uh, this is the fifth one. Uh, coped with disappointed hopes. David's faith was such that it could cope with disappointed hopes. Second Samuel 7, David wants to build a house for the Lord. What a great goal to build a temple for God. And God says, no. No, you can't. Not you. Your son can do it, but you're a man of bloodshed and war. You can't do it. What did David do? Did he go into a strop? Did he go into a huff when God said no to him? Did he take matters into his own hands? No. He took what God said and he gave himself to doing the next thing that he could do for God. And he started to gather the materials and make the preparation for his son. He trusted that God's way was the best way. He believed that God knew what was best. And there's going to be many times in the Christian life where not only do we have obstacles and opposition and delay and our own sin to contend with, but we have disappointment where God doesn't just delay a thing, but he says no to us about a thing. And our hopes are dashed. It may be in the issue of of work. It may be in the issue of uh, a restoration from an illness or a sickness or a disease. And God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want. And what are we going to do? It may be in the issue of we have been longing to see our church grow in a particular way and we've been praying that God will build his kingdom in such and such a time frame and he doesn't do it. Do we get discouraged at this? Or do we believe that God knows best? Do we rub what we believe about God and his wisdom and his power and his timing and his goodness into our disappointment and say, yes, there's disappointment, but I know 
This is what I know about God. I don't know how my disappointments are working out, but I do know this about God. And that's what we see David doing over and over again. And what is it that keeps David doing this? Where do we see this happening? That brings us to our second point. The fuel for David's faith. The fuel for David's faith. The writer of Hebrews has said, by faith. By faith. He has this lovely line about Abraham where he says, by faith, Abraham, he reckoned that God could raise the dead. There had never been a resurrection. But Abraham figured if God made a promise and God was God, you know what? God could raise the dead. And David, David reckons. And that's why he lives the way he lives. And there's two, two things. Because you know, faith isn't something we muster up in the, in the, on the spur of the moment. Whenever things are really challenging, faith is like a muscle that is trained and trained in the small movements, in the medium movements, and in the bigger movements. And then when crisis comes, the strength is there. And we fuel our faith a thousand times a day. How does David do it? Well, as you look through his journal entries in the Psalms, you see him doing it. And there's two things he does over and over and over and over again. Here they are. He keeps his eyes on God and he, he fixes his trust on God's promises. He keeps his eyes on God and he fixes or he focuses his trust on God's promises. Let's take those two. He keeps his eyes on God. Just in the, As you think of the Psalms and you think uh, through them we start off, we've got those two introductory ones and then we've got Psalm 3 and Psalm 3 has got a heading when David is fleeing from his son Absalom and he's fleeing for his life. But what does he say in verse 3? But you are a shield to me. You are the one who bestows glory and lifts my head. Psalm 4, he says, there they are and they're celebrating with their feasts and they're celebrating with their uh, harvest uh, and they're having a great time. But you have given me greater joy and you make me lie down and sleep in peace. In Psalm 7, there's been some great injustice concerning somebody uh, called Cush, a Benjamite. And David says, but God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. And we could go through and we could pick out over and over again where David says, but God or but you, Lord. And let, let's take um, that Psalm 55 uh, that we read. And in the midst of Psalm 55, uh, he's, he's outlining this betrayal that has broken his heart. Not only has his son turned against him, but his close friend has turned against him. And then he says in verse 16, But I call to God, and the Lord saves me. And Psalm 55 is in the midst of a whole series of psalms from 54 to 60, where David has enemies and enemies and enemies. And in each one, he's turning to God. Maybe he's crying out for vindication. Maybe he's crying out for justice. Maybe he's saying, God, would you do I'm not going to attack them. 
I'm going to leave that to you, Lord. You deal with them. But he's turning to God. He keeps his eyes on God. And all throughout there are these psalms of trial. And as we look at the psalms of trial, we see David in his own thought life. What's he doing? They're doing this to me. They're doing that to me. But you, Lord, you, Lord, he fixes his gaze on them. Look at Psalm 56. He says in Psalm 56 and verse 11, Well, verse 5, All day long they twist my words. They are always plotting to harm me. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps. Verse 11, In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? In God I trust. Psalm 18, think of how it starts. It starts off with the Lord who is a rock and a refuge and a fortress and a tower and a stronghold and a shield and a deliverer. He's been thinking about God. And he says, The cords of death entangled me. The sorrows of the grave took hold of me. But God, God, I cried out and he reached down and he set me in a spacious place. He had his eyes fixed on God in the Psalms of trial. That's what we find. That's how he's been thinking. When trials have been overwhelming him, he's been turning his gaze away from the trials to God and looking at his trials through the lens of God. But but not only does he keep his eyes on God, and that's, that's the hard bit. And let me encourage you to read the Psalms and not just to try and identify with David's trials, but to see what he does in his trials, how he looks to God. But don't just read the Psalms that are Psalms of trials that way. Look at the other Psalms. The Psalms of glory, we could call them, where you see David on a good day. And he's, there's no problems in his life. And he's, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. When I look up into the heavens which your own fingers made unto the moon and to the stars which you in order. He's looking at creation and he's seeing God. And he, he, what a God we have. You know, so in trials, turn your gaze to God. And when you're out driving around Donegal, and you're seeing creation, turn your gaze to God. And if you're snorkeling and you're looking at the creatures of the sea, remember David in Psalm 8 and the fish of the sea. Or maybe you're looking through binoculars at the birds of the air or a telescope at the stars. See the glory of God. Psalm 19, what's David? He's at it again. The spacious heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, Psalm 29, we read it this morning. The voice of the Lord is mighty. You're seeing the waves crashing in at, uh, at Hornhead and they're smashing in on those great cliff faces. And you think, wow, Jesus said, stop it. Be still. What a God we have. And David, Psalm, uh, Psalm 103, he, he gazes as high as he can into the heavens. And he says, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. He looks east and he looks west and he says, so great is your, you've removed our sins as far as the east is distant from the west. Psalm 140, well, Psalm 106 and 105, he looks through history and he sees God's fingerprints through history. His eyes are fixed on God, no matter where he looks, whether it's in creation, in history, uh, in troubles, He's turning his gaze to God. And then the last psalm of David, the last journal entry, 
Psalm 145. We sang it last Sabbath evening. It's an A to Z. It's an alphabet psalm of David gazing at God and saying, I can fill every letter of the alphabet with a description of my God. He's so majestic. God was big in David's eyes. You know, this, the Israelite soldiers were looking at Goliath and thinking, wow, he's big. And David was looking at God and thinking, that Goliath fellow's a dwarf. He's a pygmy. He's, he, he's nobody. Because his eyes were fixed on God. And I don't think David mustered that up in that moment. That was the fruit of days. Of, of just That was his habit. He was used to looking at life through the lens of God and seeing God around him. And David's prayers show us that he always put his trials, everything in the context of God. God was glorious to David. And so I just want to ask us, is God glorious to us? You know, as we read our Bibles, let's be reading them so that we see more of God. And you know, on this side of the cross, we get to see God from an angle and a perspective that David never got. And if David was amazed at God, and David knew that God was a God who would come to him in his trials, how much more do we know this ourselves? So, fix your eyes on God. Fix your eyes on God. And then the second thing he does to fuel his faith is to focus his mind on the promises of God. To focus his mind on the promises of God. In Psalm 56, verse 4, he says, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. And over and over in the Psalms, what what does it look like when I say David believes the promises? What words would we expect to find? Well, if we go looking for him to say about promises, we'll not find it too often. But if we go looking for him to say about faithfulness. Why do you praise God for his faithfulness? You praise God for his faithfulness because he's been faithful. What does faithfulness look like? It looks like God has done what he said he would do. And over and over again, David's saying things. Psalm 26, For I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. Psalm 36, he's doing this nature-gazing again, and he's thinking about God's promises. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness, the skies. Psalm 86, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Psalm 86, you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Psalm 138, verse 2, I will bow down towards your holy temple. I will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness. And then a great prayer. Psalm 143, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. We see it in his praising of God and his praying to God, he believed God's promises. And we see some of the particular promises that he held on to. We see it. God had made a promise that there would be somebody in David's family who would sit on the throne forever. And David has been dwelling on this promise 
and considering this promise about this, this descendant of his. And he writes, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And David has seen something, that this forever king that's going to come is going to be greater than him, and he's going to be one that would outlast any human king. He could only be God himself. And yet, David in his thinking on the promise sees something of the Trinity. God, the Lord, who says to David's Lord, you sit on the throne, I will give you the victory, and your people will be dressed in holiness the way the blades of grass are covered with the dew as the sun rises, as they sparkle there, he says in Psalm 110. He's taking the promises and he's been dwelling on them and he's been thinking, how does this work out? And he's believed the promises of God and he calls us to do the same. He keeps praising God for his faithfulness. I wonder, and I haven't taken the time to look, you know, the Psalms that cry out, you know, Lord, about the the enemies, the Psalms of trial. You know, is there an echo in the Psalms praising God for his faithfulness that those are Psalms connected to the times of trial? God, you were faithful. You cared for me. I cast my burden on you and you were faithful. And, and so here's a man who was fixated on the promises of God and he believed them no matter what was going on around him, no matter how unlikely it seemed. He believed God's word over his own feelings, over his own emotions, over his own interpretation of the circumstances, over his own solutions that he might bring to the problems. He took God's word and put it first. And faith takes God's word and gives it priority of place over everything else. And how do we... That's, that's something that as we read God's word, we need to be not just skimming it a couple of minutes here and a couple of minutes there, but reading it and not just hearing a sermon and letting it be lost to our memories, but going away and thinking, what did I hear about God today? And asking God, show me more of you. Help me to trust your word. And whenever circumstances arise, we are taking what we've seen of God and what we've heard of God and his promises, and we are pushing those into our circumstance and saying, I don't know how all this will work out, but I do know these things. This is what God is like, and this is what he said. And as we do that, we will be convinced of God's greatness and God's glory, and God will be big to us, and our trials will be small to us. And we'll be convinced of God's care for us because we'll see that he's made promises and he's kept promises and that he's faithful. And if David on that side of the cross was so excited about God's faithfulness, how much more on this side of the cross should we praise him for his faithfulness? Faith grows. Faith grows as we acknowledge that God is big and that he cares. Not just in the big moments of life, not just in our salvation, but right down into the ordinary, minuscule details of everyday life.
Here's what faith looks like. A big view of God and a conviction of His care. It it means that we will be determined to hang on to Him no matter what. That we should be determined to obey Him no matter what. For He is bigger than anything we meet and He is more concerned about us than anything we'll ever face. More concerned about us in everything we'll ever face, rather. So fix your eyes on Christ as David dimly did. We see it in full color, what he saw in black and white. And as we do that and see our great God and work at seeing him and work at believing him, we will be fueled to a faith that stands the test of obstacles and opposition and delay and temptation and failure and disappointment. And we'll run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Amen. Let's, let's stand if we're able as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that faith is something that you fuel into us as we see you. And as we've been learning about your Holy Spirit, helping us to see who you are and taking your word and unveiling it to us. And so we thank you that all the resources are there for us to keep going in the Christian life. And I pray that you would help us to fuel our faith and to not just think of faith as something for the big crises moments of life, but to be building up the muscles of faith in the the ordinary grit and grumble of everyday hassles and frustrations Help us to to be working in our faith into those moments, trusting your timing, your providence, your wisdom, your goodness, your love, your care, seeing that you are bigger than things, that you have all things under control, and that you're our Father, and that you love us, and that we can count on you, and that when we cast our cares on you, we will also say, great is his faithfulness. For he has provided all that we ever needed. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.